Nice singing, people. It's really great sitting at the front, just listening to the singing. And uh, to be fair, you've been pretty good the last few weeks, actually. But there's something about heart, isn't there? Not just voices. And, and sometimes it really just have a sense that it's the heart, not just the voice. So, as Phil has already said, from now until the summer holidays, we're going to be looking at uh, some sections of this completely epic book. And uh, my only... Let's just make that stay there. My only disappointment, um, as I've been getting stuck into it, is that we're not looking at more sections of the book. So it may be that we come back to some things later on in the year. So we're going to do a bit of an introduction to Isaiah and to the kind of world that Isaiah was in. So bear with me, we will get to the beginning of the passage. Don't promise we're going to get to the end of the passage, but we will get to the beginning. So this is... Uh, a scroll of the book of Isaiah, or a picture of the scroll of the book of Isaiah, that was found um, with the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran in 1948. This bit of paper is dated around 100 BC, which is roughly a thousand years earlier than the previous earliest book of Isaiah. In that thousand year period of time, there was virtually no change whatsoever And given how great we are at copying out, that is pretty remarkable, isn't it? That in a thousand-year period, this book of Isaiah had not changed. Which gives us confidence, and I know that seems like an odd place to start, but confidence that we can trust this, that it is the Scriptures and it is historically correct, and we can go with that. So I just wanted to start there. Jesus quotes more from Isaiah than any other Old Testament book other than the Psalms. Paul quotes more from Isaiah than any other Old Testament book. So it's a little bit like Shakespeare. You know, you might not have read all of Shakespeare's plays, but you will hear things and think, oh, that sounds awfully familiar. That's because most of Isaiah that you'll think about is in the New Testament, which you may have read, even if you haven't read Isaiah, which is good for when you get to heaven and you meet Isaiah, at least you can quote something of what he said back at him. And the book of Isaiah gives us unrivaled insight into the character of God. It is, if you like, a little bit of a parallel to the whole of the Bible. So, let's have a test. How many books are in the whole of the Bible? 66. It's really good. You only have to remember one number and just say it again. All right, 66. How many chapters are there in the book of Isaiah? 66. Isn't that helpful? How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. A good voice from the back there. And how many books are in the New Testament? (laughs) 27 is the answer. So, it is understood that the book of Isaiah is a bit like the Bible in miniature. And the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are known as the book of judgment, which in some ways replicates the Old Testament. I know that's a little bit simplistic. And the second 27 chapters are understood as the book of comfort, which sort of represents the New Testament. So it's kind of helpful for us, just thinking about Isaiah, to know how to break it down into its building blocks. Isaiah calls God 
the Holy One of Israel. He calls him the Holy One of Israel. He uses that term 26 times. It is only used six times in the whole rest of the Bible. This is Isaiah's special term for God. This is what Isaiah understood about God. And he uses that word kadosh, which is really difficult to translate as Rachel prayed. <laughs> uh, means holy and sacred, set apart, entirely in a league of his own. Isaiah is trying to persuade the people and challenge them that all their problems stem from them dragging God down to their level. And the only hope that they've got is to get a bigger view of God. And that's our challenge to ourselves and to you over this next period of time, is that we expand our view of God. Because for all of us, I imagine, our view of God is too small, too domesticated, and we need to expand that. Isaiah reveals something of the depth of God's character, his supremacy, his majesty, his sovereignty, his generosity, even his trinity. He speaks of the depth of the gospel. That first half of Isaiah talks about the gulf between God's character and ours and the risk of judgment. And the second half talks about the message of sacrifice and salvation. He is known as the evangelist of the Old Testament. So do you know him? Has now moved into the Old Testament. But the question is still there. Do you know him? And he talks about the depth of God's plan for world history from the beginning to the end of Isaiah is the message that one day all people from all nations will come to the mountain of the Lord and acknowledge that the Lord is God. Are you excited yet? One amen. Good. So the message is that God is bigger than you think. God is bigger than you think. And here's a couple of verses from two chapters. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. So we're going to have a brief overview of Bible history in about 10 seconds. So I said it was brief. Isaiah is one of the Old Testament prophets who prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah. I've put the blue thinky bubble there to make it easier for those of you who, like me, can't actually see this. So it goes, creation and the patriarchs, slavery in Egypt, the exodus and the conquest of the promised land, and then the period of the judges, people like Samson and Gideon and Deborah, and then there's the monarchy, that's Saul and David and Solomon, Solomon builds the temple, and then it all goes a bit pear-shaped, and the kingdom is split in half, and you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and to the south you have the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, and at some point along that line the temple is destroyed and the people are taken uh, into exile at 587 BC. And then later on, Ezra and Nehemiah come back and they start to rebuild in the land. Have you got that? Good, excellent. Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom during the reigns of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. There is not a book of Hezekiah, but there is a king called Hezekiah. His name means God saves. Interesting, isn't it? Like Jesus, like Joshua, Isaiah has the same root, means God saves. Now, there is a lot of debate about this very important issue. Was there one Isaiah 
two Isaiahs, three Isaiahs, or a whole bunch of them. See, some people think there was one Isaiah, he wrote the whole thing, and a lot of it is prophetic. Some people think there was two Isaiahs. One of them wrote the first 39 chapters, and then somebody else who was more cheery of disposition came in <laughs> and wrote the second half. Some people think there was three Isaiahs, the one that wrote the bit, 1 to 39, the one that wrote about the servant songs, 40 to 55, and then another guy that came in at chapter 55 and said, this book needs finishing, and wrote the last 10 chapters. Then other people think that there was a school of Isaiahs, and so all these little characters were going around calling themselves Isaiah and speaking in the tone of Isaiah, but actually no one really knows what their name was. For the sake of convenience, we're going to go for one Isaiah, all right? <laughs> he was the grandson of King Joash. Now that should make you think, because if he's the grandson of a king, that makes him royal. He grew up in the palace. He was educated with rank and status. And God called him to be a prophet, and that was a pretty tough ask. His wife was a prophetess. Sadly, none of what she said is recorded. Here's another timeline that's even smaller. <laughs> see, look, I actually printed myself out a copy so I could actually see it all. <laughs> you know, Israel, Judah's story, connects to the surrounding nations. And seriously, this is really interesting, not probably for right now, but it is. Connecting to the surrounding nations, the Assyrians primarily at this point, and later on we'll talk more about the Babylonians. And the key factor as we look at this chapter, chapter 6, is that after three difficult years of holding the Aramean city of Arpad under siege, I know you think this is really interesting, don't you? The king of Assyria, King Tig Tiglath-Pileser III, if you're wondering about names for your children, <laughs> King Tiglath-Pileser III overcame the city of Arpad in Aram. And there was a bloodbath in that city and in that area. And after he had achieved that, he turned his eyes southwards towards Jerusalem. And that's why that's important. It was at that very moment that King Isaiah... Oops decided to die. At that really critical moment, he died. Such a significant point, 740 BC, we can actually name the year that this took place, the year that King Isaiah died. Who is he? Who is Isaiah? By the way, that's the inscription that's on his tomb, so he was a real person. Most of our information comes from 2 Chronicles 26. I suggest that you go away and read that at some point. He came to the throne when he was 16 years of age, and he reigned for 52 years. He was actually Isaiah's cousin, so it's personal as well as professional, this issue. He served God much of the time, especially when Zechariah was the prophet. You can read Zechariah's words somewhere else in the Bible. He was creative and innovative and successful. He defeated his enemies, the Philistines, the Arabs, and the Ammonites. All went really well for most of the time. And then quite late on in his reign, success and prosperity got to him and led him astray. And he committed an offense in the temple. And he was struck down with leprosy, which is what he died from eventually. During that final part of his reign, the government was handed over to his son, Jotham, and they reigned together for 11 years. 
the nation started to experience more inequality and social unrest at that point as well. So internally and externally, things were not going well for the land of Judah. But he was a long-serving, good, faithful to God most of the time, popular king. And this was a key moment of change for the nation of Judah and in the life of Isaiah. Isaiah held things together. When there were threats from the northern kingdom and Assyria, he held things together. What's going to happen now? As I was thinking about this this week, it made me think about what is going to happen when the queen dies. And uh, for most of us in this room, slightly less at the other service, we've never known anything else. And she's been a good queen, and she has created stability to our nation and, and also in the world. What's going to happen when she dies? Because she will die eventually, you know. I mean, she's doing well, but she, she will. What's going to happen? What happens when Brexit actually happens? I use the word when, but hey. <laughs> What happens when things that have stayed stable and constant and certain and have created security for us change? Whether it's the loss of our job, the loss of our home or the change of our home, the change of our status, the role that we've continued with for a good percentage of our lives. When illness hits us severely, to be honest, even when some good things happen, it unsettles and changes how we feel. Where do we really find our security? Where, where do we find that security? Is it in all of those things? Of course, it, it is to some degree, but ultimately, where is it? The death of Isaiah challenge the nation to face up to the things that block their vision of God. And some of those things block our vision of God, don't they? And it's a little bit like an eclipse, isn't it? Where actually the moon is much smaller and duller than the sun, which is much bigger and brighter, but you stand in the right place with all the right angles, and the small, dull moon can block out the huge, bright sun. Is your God too small? But is that small God blocking your vision of our great and majestic God? What happens when we face insecurity or even chaos? Where do we turn? Where do we go? What is our response to crisis? Because Isaiah's response in the face of Isaiah's death was to go to the temple, to go to the place of worship and prayer, the place of God's presence and his glory. This is Solomon's temple that was filled with the glory and the splendor of God, so much so that the priests fell on their faces under the weight of the presence of God. You know, church isn't exactly like the temple, but it's not exactly not like the temple either. Because Jesus said, when two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am. God's word exhorts us to meet together in this place. So when stuff happens, this is a good place to meet with God. And I know it's not just that place, but do we find the place of worship and prayer and the presence of God when crisis 
and chaos comes upon us. So Isaiah says that in that place of seeking, he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Wow. I mean, wow. It's not a great word, is it? But he sees the Lord. And the train of his robe fills the temple. When I was young, I always used to giggle at that because I could only think of choo-choo trains. <laughs> but you know what? Our image is probably more influenced by Meghan Markle's wedding dress <laughs> than maybe by anything more significant than that. The train. Was it like that? I mean, hers was pretty spectacular, wasn't it? You know, another word of description for that could be the hem or corners. It referred to the fringes of a Jewish man's robe. That's what Isaiah would have been thinking. Those fringes were so unique on a man's robe that they could even be used to seal a legal agreement. They took the fringes from their robe and they pressed them into the wax and they were so unique that later on they could say, well, definitely, we need to check if it was you. And, and they could recheck. They had spiritual significance because a Jewish man would hold the fringes of his robe as he prayed. It was his connecting, tactile connecting point to God. And that's now turned into the simplicity of the prayer shawl where it's just the hinges, uh, fringes, <laughs> without, uh, without the robe. Fast forward a little bit. You remember the story of the woman who'd had the issue of blood for many years? She came to Jesus, the rabbi. She said, if only I can touch the hem of his garment. If only I can touch the hem, the fringe the train, because that's where that connecting point is between heaven and earth. And the train of his robe, the fringes of his garment, filled the whole temple. If that doesn't give you a sense of how huge God is, when just the fringes of his garments fill the whole temple, then I don't know what does. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is just a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, isn't it? It reminded me of when we were doing Revelation not so long ago. Because the parallels are so clear. Do you remember that when we were talking about Revelation, we talked about just pulling the curtain back and glimpsing through the curtain to the reality that is revealed beyond the curtain or peeking through the blinds to see what is truly there. You know, what is there in Revelation that is constantly true, regardless of what this world is doing? It's the same truth that Isaiah saw back in 740 BC when he was in the temple and he glimpsed beyond to the throne room 
of heaven, and he saw the reality that God is on the throne, and all the living beings are worshipping him, and in Revelation, God is on the throne, and all the living beings are worshipping him. It's the same. That truth is always true. It does not matter what is occurring on earth, either personally or politically. That truth is always true. And those beings worshipped him, holy, holy, holy. And there's a hint there of the three persons of the Trinity, isn't there? I kind of imagine them going, holy, holy, holy. But you know what? That's more than make-believe. If you turn over to John chapter 12, and really it's from verse 37, but I'm not going to read all of that. Verse 39 says this, for this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, by the way, I love the fact in most of the scriptures it uses the word elsewhere. So for those of you that find Bible references hard to remember, they clearly did as well, right? Maybe they just didn't have them. Anyway, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Wow. And then turn over with me to Acts, chapter 28. And referring to this very passage that Ruth read to us a bit earlier. Verse 25. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say. So Luke also is saying that the Holy Spirit is involved, that it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are somehow in this experience. But more than that, holy, holy, holy. You know, in 2 Kings 25 verse 15, the writer is trying to speak about the purity of gold and the purity of silver. And they don't have in Hebrew a word, um, I can't remember what the term is, anyway, a grammatical term that they are all in order to do that. So instead of that, they say, when they want to say pure gold, they say gold, gold. So it's not a typo. They write the word gold, and then after that, they write the word gold again. And if they want to say pure silver, they write the word silver, and then they write the word silver again. So when the seraphim are trying to be in the presence of God and describe his purity and his holiness, they use the word kadosh, but that's not enough. So they say kadosh, kadosh, but that also is not enough. So they say kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. This is purity and holiness beyond our imagination, beyond what we can describe, beyond what we can ever imagine more than human language can ever communicate. Holy Lord. Exactly the same in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, when the angels around the throne cry out, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts shook and the threshold of the temple, and smoke filled the place. It was like an earthquake throughout the temple in the presence of Almighty God. These temple pillars 
up until the pineapple bits, <laughs> were 27 feet high. They were huge. The temple was huge. The train of God's robe filled the temple. And the pillars shook, and the floor shook, and the smoke, like the glory of God, filled the space. It's just awesome. And Isaiah was in that place. And his first response was not encouragement, but despair just despair. Woe to me, because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I didn't do art for very long at school, (laughs) but long enough to remember that I was told that when you want to paint white, it's never white. Because when you look against pure white, all white is never white. In the face of the holiness of God, everything is a shade of grey or or darker. We are unclean and we live among people who are unclean. But he says, and he says, my eyes have seen the king. I want you to notice two things here. At the beginning of this passage, it says, in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah goes to the temple, and the first thing he realizes is that he has seen the king, capital, bold, underlined. The king might have died, but he has seen the king. The king who is always on the throne, who rules forever and ever. He's taken his eyes off this king, who has taken his attention, and he's put his eyes onto this king, the one who really matters and who really rules and reigns. The second thing is that he knew that there was this understanding that if you had seen something of the glory of God, you were going to die. So that would make you a little bit despairing, wouldn't it? So I've seen the Lord. You know, Moses was put behind a rock. People describe something. I mean, he didn't even describe what God looked like. He described some of the things around the presence of God. I've seen the king. He is convicted of his own sinfulness and that of his nation. And any level of self-confidence that maybe he ever had has gone. Now listen, I know that we are all the same. In that on occasions we put ourselves on a little pedestal and we go, I am better than. There's that wonderful sketch, isn't there? I'm better than him. We all do that. We all look around and we say, we're better than. We're less unholy, less impure, less unclean. Slightly whiter than. But as I was sitting there, as we were worshipping, I felt like maybe one of the things that God wanted us to know this morning was that he is holy. Forgive me for being obvious. I mean, he is holy. 
And I am not. But I kind of think that I am because I'm kind of okay. And I don't do anything obviously that terrible. But I am so far from holy. My thoughts, my attitudes, some of the stuff I say, most of the stuff that is in my head that I never say, because I'm a bit more controlled than that, <laughs> most of the time. I am not holy, and he is, and we have the privilege to be in his presence. And Isaiah made confession, and that is simply saying that we agree with God and his view of us. It's not saying I'm sorry, although it may be a bit of that. It's saying, God, you're right, I agree with you. When you look at me and you look at my heart and you see what's in it, I agree with you that I am unclean. I agree with you that I am unholy. I agree with you that I need your cleansing, your forgiveness, your transformation. I agree with you. Not, I'm doing okay, thanks. Oh, well, I'm better than them. Well, I haven't done that. In the presence of our holy God, what's going on in our hearts? And Isaiah makes this confession, and then in that beautiful moment, one of the seraphs flies down to the altar in the center of the temple where the coals are burning. They are burning says in Chronicles, with a fire that was sent from heaven. This is no man-made fire. This is a fire from heaven. And the angel takes the coal from the fire, and he flies to Isaiah, and he takes that coal, and he places it on his lips. It's not a fairy tale. He takes the burning coal from the fire, and he places it on Isaiah's lips. And his mouth is scarred. And that's part of his message. He says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. This is the temple where they were sacrificing lambs and goats and all manner of pigeons and stuff for the sake of a possibility of atonement, of cleansing. Those sacrifices that the writer of the Hebrews would write about and say, these point, these point to Jesus. And in that moment, the angel says, your guilt is taken away. Atonement has been made for you already. This is a moment of grace that the burning fire given by God is put on Isaiah's lips, and in that moment, grace is given to him. He is cleansed. His guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for in that moment. And into this unsettled chaos, God always chooses to send a servant of truth, a messenger of truth. He's always speaking. He's always wanting to speak to his people. We're generally not wanting to listen, but God is always speaking. He's always sending someone he says, whom, um, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who shall I send and who will go for us? And in that moment, Isaiah says, send me. Send me. 
He's experienced the convicting reality of the holiness of God. He has also experienced the purifying, cleansing reality of the grace of God. And his message is both a truth about the holiness of God and a truth about the comforting salvation of God. Here I am, send me. You know why we're doing? Do you know him still? (laughs) It's because we have experienced the truth of conviction that our sin has separated us from God and the truth of the cross that his grace has enabled us to come near and to know salvation and forgiveness. So when God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? The answer is, send me, send us, because who else does he have to speak his message into this world. And Isaiah's message was a really, really tough assignment. He said that they're, they're not going to listen. In fact, as you speak, they're going to not listen even more. It's not a preacher's joy, is it really? Their eyes are going to be blinded. Their hearts are going to be calloused. But just keep going. And Isaiah says, and how long am I having to do this for? And God says, till all the cities are devastated, till no one's living in their homes anymore, until the whole nation is living in exile great, thanks for that. (laughs) But even in that moment, there's this little hope that there will be a stump and out of the stump will grow life and that life will prove to be the hope of the world.